Good day, everyone. We are so excited to be here today on Yamishana's podcast, created and hosted by Prudence Yamishana. With more than 43 episodes, the podcast rose to the ranks quickly and recently won the African Afro Bloggers Award. Prudence has hosted many inspiring guests who discuss humanitarian, human rights, journalism and media topics, along with feminism, creative expression and arts in general, um, and topics of relevance to current affairs in Uganda and the region. We are so thrilled to take over the podcast with a special episode from Khartoum, Sudan, featuring Rubel Milik and Reem Abbas and hosted by myself, Umnia Shaukat at Trift Digital Lab. I want to introduce the book um, with to you all uh, by reading the book description that we've shared recently. Upon their arrival to power through a coup d'etat in 1989, the Sudanese Islamist regime, known as Inqaz, shut down the national theater, closed all cinemas, banned love songs on public channels, discontinued magazines, and confiscated books. Artists found themselves arrested on morality and decency charges, and within a year, arts institutions were shut down. By terminating the entire infrastructure that artists depend on to, thir- to, su- to survive and thrive, authorities sought to control the art produced. The consequences of this control shaped the cu- cultural outlook on, on art and its production that was produced for three decades, up until the 2018-2019 uprising that partially ousted the regime. The book explores... The consequences of this control shaped the cultural outlook on art and its production for three decades up until the 2018-2019 uprising that partially ousted the regime. The book explores how the Inqaz regime's war on artistic principles transformed the arts and culture movement in Sudan. It focuses on three themes. Firstly, the systematic destruction of arts infrastructure, which led to the lack of resources and opportunities for artists. Secondly, the reasons for and patterns of artists' migration, dispersal, and exile during the regime's rule, and lastly, the decades of arts resistance that led to the 2018-2019 uprising. Weaving historical moments and stories of artists, curators, and industry players regarding the stagnation and potential revival of art and its infrastructure, The book unveils a breathtaking tapestry of grit and resistance and explores the forces of memory, gender, political religiosity, governance, conflict, and institutions that kept artists suppressed for decades. Spanning five states, Khartoum, Blue Nile, Zinnar, North Darfur, and Al Jazeera, El-Milik and Abbas's work argues that offering a reproduction of artists' collective memory regarding the early years of Inqaz while constructing an overarching narrative that reveals the thought, theory, and principle which shape artistic resistance from 1989 until today can lead to the undoing of resistance of the war on art in Sudan's contemporary history. Welcome, Reem. Welcome, Ruba. Mm-hmm. Let's start with you introducing yourselves. Hi, um, I'm Ruba Malik. It's a pleasure to be here. So I am an, a sociocultural anthropologist, um, and I my areas that I love to work in or the contexts that I love to work in are usually studying the like women's issues within the context of Sudan specifically in relationship to sociality and marriage, um, studying the relationship between art and public consciousness, and generally just exploring sort of the tensions between general or public consciousness and then underlying themes and nuances that are usually hidden. But it's a pleasure to be here today, and I'm so excited 
for Reem and I to talk about the book and share with you all. Uh, my name is Reem, and I am. I started out as a journalist, and I focused on women's rights, human rights, uh, politics, and and conflict. And uh, for the last few years, I have been doing communications for different organizations, and also I am a researcher. My um, I've I've done research on cyberbullying of women rights activists in Sudan, and I've also done research on. Um, women, peace and security, uh, the peace process in Sudan, and the women's movement. And I'm very interested in documenting and writing about the women's movement in Sudan. How did you end up working together on this book? Um, It was an opportunity. So um, I was approached by Andrea, and um, they had a project and one of the components of the project was the book, but it was a, it was a larger project. And then I was interested because I'm I was interested in the topic, and I had a lot of research already. And uh, it was an opportunity to finally work uh, on a book project on something that I cared about, and knowing that I would have this um, the support basically from Andrea and so on. And then I was introduced to Ruba, who I knew kind I kind of knew her, but not very much. And then I just saw that our experiences um, that complement each other. As you know, she's an anthropologist. She's very interested in ethnography. And I'm a journalist. And uh, we just kind of found some common ground. And it was really nice to work together, um, you know, on this book. Yeah, I totally uh, agree. And I'm so glad those dynamics were able to be reflected in the writing uh, in the book. But it's kind of the same thing. I think after the revolution in 2019, there were so many people, I think especially like thinkers or people in positions like this that were just wanting to do something relating to art, literally anything. And people were coming kind of from different angles. And I remember Omni and I kind of had like a, a meeting or a, a breakfast, a lovely breakfast where we had a conversation. And this was like the thing that the idea that we loved that we, we shared, you know, um, and Dream had been working on this, like, uh, I think Omnia knew that Dream had been interested in the same thing. And so uh, we, we connected and yeah, like the rest is the rest is history. Yeah. Our entire premise of why we wanted to work with you and why this book was exciting for us is in the foreword to the book. So I'm just going to leave that to the readers to finally read because it's a very long one. Um, but we're very excited to to have this opportunity to, to work with you and also to see your work flourish um, with Andrea as well. Um, I want to move on to the next question, and now we kind of start digging into the book itself. I want to read uh, to the listeners in the preface. Um, there was something that you wrote that really stuck with me. Quote, Many artists and groups took great personal risks to show people that they deserve better and that darkness is only temporary. In fact, darkness is not a natural state. Documenting this process was key for us because it showed that when the institutions that held the movement together were that the institutions that held the movement together were dismantled in the 1990s and artists became seen as enemies, they were able to build back their movement. But this time, it was more decentralized and encompassed several states and operated under different banners such as art galleries, newspapers, cultural websites, art groups and associations, and even national organizations. It occupied the private and public spaces and cornered the different wings of the Islamists until their wings were broken." 
Art is going through another shock in this confusing moment in the country's history, stuck between a barely viable coup and ongoing resistance. What variables from the 30 years of Inqa's resistance do you see changing and what are remaining the same? Um, so I think one similar or maybe hopefully eternal thing is just like the resilient patchwork of artists and art that is always been here and continues to be here no matter what and you have these efforts like continuously expressed um, throughout all these different manifestations uh, of the art world or of like its corners and the most exciting thing is we're getting we're just like continuing on with that evolution it wasn't interrupted um, and that's sort of a permanent variable right and and now the actually the more exciting thing is that you have people really learning and picking up on like the technical and industry side of things as well as people like developing their own talents whereas before we didn't really like we had artists but we didn't really have a lot of curators for example but now you see like all of these different sides of the so I think that's that's one variable that people continue to learn and people continue um, to resist you know so in terms of differences I think One one big difference I see is in infrastructure. Like I said, I think people have had a little bit, a little bit, tiny bit of opportunity to sort of build. But it's been maybe a very confused um, sort of like uh, opportunity for a lot of different people. So we have folks who are sort of adding to infrastructure in a way that isn't really known or a way that isn't really grassroots or a way that is very like specific and particular and um, has a very institutional NGO vibe to it, uh, which is which is very limiting, you know, and something that we talk about in the book is that art or Sudanese art doesn't only live within within resist like within revolutionary narratives. That's literally one thing. Um, and even though we have artists working within all types of media, all types of mediums um, within the art world, we still need to branch out from that one uh, specific, uh, you know, stream. So I see a little bit of that now as well. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, I think there are attempts, but still not a very clear focus yet. First of all, I want to comment that it was very difficult for us to just tackle the 30 years, 1989 to 2019. And um, we, we, we made this decision. It was a very diffi- difficult decision to, to make because when we started the research, kind of the revolution was still ongoing and we, we still have revolutionary movement in Sudan. Um, but we felt that it's a process, you know, it's a process and this is a long-term process and uh, we're not going to see where um, the fruits of this movement for years to come. And this is really something that I believe now. Um, and because this is a process, I feel that right now we're all doing our part in ensuring that we see political and social change in Sudan very soon. And we are already seeing that even though Sudan's, you know, f- uh, political uh, history is very turbulent and it's really in a cycle of like revolution and then after revolution you have transitional period and then after that you have another military coup, we saw something different um, this time around. Uh, after the, the revolution of 2019, maybe um, we don't really have a serious political gains in the sense that we're still living under a coup. 
But we saw that people were empowered. And I think this is the main gain that we saw after the revolution. People are empowered. They are carving out uh, bigger spaces for themselves. Uh, this We are fighting. We're all fighting for a bigger civic space. Um, there are more platforms that are coming up, you know, because people want to have platforms to, to, to speak out, to organize, to mobilize, and to get educated, to spread awareness, and do so many things. Right now, we are at Rift Valley, and there are three different art galleries on the street, and it's just one street. So, and this was something that we just didn't see before. So right now, so many young people are fighting to have artistic spaces in different neighborhoods. Um, the resistance committees, for example, that are very active in you know, mobilizing against um, the military dictatorship are also building libraries and they are coming up with different artistic initiatives in their neighborhoods. So this is the real gain out of the revolution for me is that people are continuing to use arts, they're continuing to build platforms and they're continuing to fight for better civic spaces. Um, so just weeks ago, we saw, for example, um, a crackdown on an art gallery. We saw that paintings were confiscated, artists were arrested. So this is one of, those are like some of the negative things that we're seeing. So we're seeing more confiscation. We're seeing tightening of spaces. Uh, we're seeing that the, sometimes the risks are high. So when you do put out art, um, you do, you still continue to face risk. Uh, but like I said, I feel that what is changing is that we are seeing artistic spaces. We're seeing people fight for them. And we are seeing them being a very big part of the revolutionary movement, you know. And we're seeing artists themselves leading this kind of change. I want to go to the next question. Um, and I remember one of the first times that I read Memory, and I've, I've read this book so many times, uh, Memory as a Theme, it was really moving for me and it was quite sobering for me, not just as an editor, but someone who is in this cultural space. It was sobering to know that being in this cultural environment right now is resistance that is ongoing from generations past and those we lost along the way. And you've highlighted all of these things. The piece that stood out to me is the following. Start quote. By 1995, the archive at the Radio and Broadcast Corporation was mostly destroyed, and this archive included recordings by long-deceased Sudanese female musicians, end quote. What was your experience writing this important theme as researchers and writers, and what was the most shocking moment or finding during the research and writing of this book? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very sort of deeply haunting sentences to sit and contemplate on the things that we've literally lost forever um, in a way and can't get back. And those are only the things that we do know. So what is out there that we've lost that we don't know? And I think memory was a really, really important uh, sort of concept or lens to explore in the book or to add to the book because it's very intimate. And so it was necessary to show how the systematic ways that, you know, the oppressors decided to sort of limit people's perception of art and destroy their relationship to it wasn't just like inflicted upon the archive or in the streets or people were chased out or they were killed, but it was literally in your mind, you know? And I think that's one of the most intimate places where we can actually sit and realize like, something happened to us you know and things would have been different if this hadn't happened so I, I 
I really thought it was important to show that the regime wasn't only in the streets, but it was in our minds and in the ways that we were uh, raised and in our upbringing and in our homes and even in our relationships between like with each other, with our siblings, and especially with our parents and the generations that came before us that saw something different, but are much more hesitant to share those stories and those histories with us or frame frame them positively, you know? So that encouragement to sort of hide entire generations sort of memories and experiences away and welcome in this new moral revolution as it was framed is a huge a huge deal um, because these are stories that were supposed to, you know, in a way be passed on to us and memories that we were supposed to keep um, and preserve. Uh, but uh, we were sort of denied that responsibility and stopped from it. I think, yeah, I think when, when we started talking about memory, it was not just about um, the, the authorities that basically burned and, and distorted and got rid of uh, you know, tapes and, and archives, basically, because they because the, the way the, the former regime saw it, um, they came to Sudan and uh, to a Sudan that was living in the Jahiliya time. The Jahiliya is the period before Islam. And this is uh, and, and they basically likened their presence to coming, uh, you know, as as conquerors, basically, and saving people from the Jahiliya period, which is a period of ignorance. And this is why they wanted they wanted us to to have nothing to remember, basically to have no uh, no basically uh, visual memories of what Sudan was before they came in 1989 and this is why very little of the archive in the you know the broadcast um, corporation is left but not only that they only they also um, basically ruined uh, confiscated and burned a lot of personal archives we have met people who to- who told us that um, you know security officers officers raided their house in the 1990s and even after that and confiscated personal belongings. They confiscated papers and books and and things that were so important for us to know about and to to have. And also uh, sometimes because they were, uh, they they had to move many times because they were on the radar, because they were under surveillance, because they were uh, scared of their lives and because of, of course, um, the diff- uh, poverty that was uh, that we saw in, of course, many of the writers in Sudan and the artists. So this meant that every time they left, they had to get rid of or not or kind of leave behind very important archives. So a lot of things were lost. A lot of very important, uh, you know, uh, archives that would have helped us kind of understand the past better and would have helped us understand who we are as a people and as a nation was lost in the process. And this was this was deliberate. You know, it was deliberate and it was done with important care because they wanted us not to know. They wanted us to 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 just um, uh, feel that as a country, our our the country started in 1989, not before that. Um, so this this was very important for us. It was very important for us to talk about that. And it was very important for us to realize that a lot of the archives was was also people. So we talked to a lot of people. We, we we tried to 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 ask them to remember a lot of things and and to write down a lot of things and to and to show us pictures and to and to lead us to other people who remembered things, and uh, we really relied on their memories and we relied on on uh, large networks of people who were there and shared with us their time and their memories and of different events. 
And at the same time, we were also um, we also understood that some of the archives are in um, are personal. So we also tried to get documents and papers from different individuals, and it was not easy. Some of them were were scared to share things because it was so precious to them. But uh, for some of them, we were able to get documents and and pictures, and it was really instrumental in helping us understand, um, you know, uh, this past, this very turbulent past. Yeah, I think that's very true. Like the experience of fieldwork was uh, amazing, and just being able to interview and meet all these different peoples. I, uh, people, I think, uh, Reem, like as a as a journalist, you're kind of used to entering sort of secret pockets of culture and exploring that, and you're very daring as well in your work uh, in that field too. So that's amazing, and and being able to that's amazing and being able to to do that in this research and then with the commitment of bringing forth those stories to the people that we're sharing them with which is the entire population our entire community was uh like very fulfilling but of course nothing beats literally sitting with people and and seeing their reactions and and being able to do that sort of emotional work and emotional connection with people and really be taking in and understanding where they are and how how they've been situated in this country uh, for the past 30 years, 10 years, however old or young they may be. Um, and I think there were amazing examples of, uh, of people hesitating about the archive, of course, and then also people being extremely excited and pulling out these very, very obscure things um, from like dusty cupboards and like secret corners in their houses and being like, I have more in my office. Come see, I have this and I have that historical document. And when you ask like, how did you get this? And some of them are just avid collectors. Some of them keep moments from their lives, which I think is a very interesting uh, an amazing sort of archival practice. Um, and and some people actually took advantage of um, being in the right place at the right time when the archive was being destroyed and, and sort of gathering and, and keeping what they could. And I think capturing that, even that like one feeling of desperation of imagining someone seeing like a library be destroyed and then going in and grabbing what they can or someone seeing film reels being destroyed and grabbing what they can or things being thrown out and taking them and keeping them for 30 years um, is truly like a remarkable uh, moment and it means so much those moments uh, are meaningful and and were very meaningful and uh, seeing so many different artists sort of participate in that practice was incredible um, and it was nice to see how being a kind of documenter was a byproduct of being an artist uh, in general or someone who very much related to art or loved art, there's always this desire, no matter what, beyond self-expression to sort of document or to share. Um, and that's what's been oppressed for 30 years. That's where things were stopped for 30 years. So even those people that were able to hold on to the things that they made or the things that they felt were important, those things are still withering away because there's no place for them to be exhibited. There was no place for them to be uh, displayed. And as amazing as it is to see personal efforts, it was also very heartbreaking um, to see uh, the amount of things uh, that were very important to people that people would never see. Um, and to see efforts like songs and albums and books that were never published or released, uh, to see 
sheet music that nobody cared about, to see drawings that weren't shared, paintings that weren't sold. Uh, and um, yeah, there, there were just so many experiences like that. And in a way, I think it made us feel, probably you too, Reem, that we just want to like take those things and be like, I'll publish you, I'll share your song, I'll do whatever you want, I'll work for you forever. Um, but it's daunting. It's daunting when you think of the millions of, of pieces of art that had, have already been created that we haven't seen, you know? And it scares me that the focus is often on, yeah, what is the future of Sudan? What is the future of art? Like, what more can people do? What can people start doing? But what about the 30 years worth of work, the 30 years, years worth of personal archives, the 30 years worth of personal, like, art memorabilia or whatever that are just sitting there and haven't yet found an audience or a home. Um, I think those are important. And if we really want to have a lasting difference or make a lasting impact on the way we perceive art, we have to pay respect to the art that we were held away from for the past 30 years. And that's where we start. And I remember, Ruba, we, we also, at some point, we asked ourselves a very important question. Um, what makes more sense or what is more even like ethical? Um, should we should we root for like the national records, like the, the government, you know, uh, basically, you know, owned or like the government uh, entity that is called the national uh, records? Or should we support, um, you know, personal archives? Because we also felt that it's really nice to have all the archives in one place. But at the same time, because we do understand that, you know, Sudan's history is very turbulent and we've always had political, uh, you know, regimes that are kind of anti-art and anti, you know, writers and anti-culture even, and um, like the Islamist regime, if we gave them the responsibility to manage this, they would do the same, you know? I mean, and we saw this in the 1990s that a lot of archives were burned and destroyed because they did not basically um, fit the moral code of the ruling authority. But at the same time, when you have so many personal archives, it becomes hard to trace basically who has what, you know, and, 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 and it becomes very kind of difficult to ensure that this archive is going to kind of be protected from generation to generation. And I remember uh, a few years ago, I also started asking this question when I was researching this musician, famous Sudanese musician, the first Sudanese musician to actually sing in the national radio station, Ash al-Falatiya or Asha Musa. And uh, I was told that her archives, everything is with her, uh, ha- was actually in uh, with her son. Her son passed away a few years earlier. So I was told that when he passed away, he gave it to his friend who lives in this neighborhood. So we went to the neighborhood with, with someone who knows him or who knew him basically. And we were looking for this um, for this person who has her archives and we were told that they moved and we had no idea where they went. So it's also a responsibility. How can you, tr- there are so many things that are so difficult to trace when you don't really know who has them. But also another thing that really, and I, uh, that really um, uh, stood out to me and really made me think about um, so many different things about how archives and how books and how assets are handled is um, 2014 when um, Salma Center was shut down. It's an it's a women's organization, but they had a huge library of books on the women's movement in Sudan and, and outside and feminist books and so on. And, uh, and I remember the library was confiscated and uh, 
it was supposed all the books were supposed to be taken to al mahraqa which is a place where they burn books basically and you know and and really just knowing that you know sudan is a is the kind of country where at so many different periods of time books were burned is really scary very very scary and i remember the the the, the founder of this organization she basically she went and she you know spoke to some people and she managed to 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 get this um this library back the only thing she got actually from the whole center all the assets the library and i remember that day i went to her house and she and basically they brought her all the library in this big um like truck and the books were all over you know on the streets and inside her house and in the in, in her like backyard and and she was kind of working through them and like getting everything sorted out and and it was very it was a very emotional thing to see that that wow i mean at least yes the books look really you know it's like dusty and it's all over the place and it's probably going to take her like three days to go through them but i she saved the books you know she saved them and 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 just knowing that is is was just very um it was a very ter- tearful moment for me so knowing that some people are there out there are holding on to things that are so precious and that are so important to the history of this country and they are keeping them safe is good to know and i hope that one day we are able to have everything in the national archives in the national records you know so it's more accessible to researchers so we know where to go when we want to research a particular topic or a particular era but until then it's just about keeping keeping a lot of the archives you know safe basically from the authorities and you know the fundamentalists who are against any cultural scene in sudan would you like to share with us what are some of the most shocking moments or what was the most shocking moment uh, or finding for you during this research or um, writing of the book I think there are two things that for me were shocking and and shocking doesn't mean that you know that they they didn't come to mind beforehand or that I wasn't aware of them but but I think the scope you know was shocking for me one of the things is the intergenerational uh you know problems or issues between the within the cultural scene and we saw this a lot in al jazeera state and of course in other states as well but in al jazeera state i remember how it was very visible um and it was sad because there were three different kind of cultural movements or cultural groups representing different eras so you had the older cultural movement of like you know two groups that started out in the 1970s and you had another uh you know other groups that started in in the 1990s and like other groups that started in the late uh, into after 2010 and there were like three different generations and it was interesting how uh the the different generations just didn't get support from each other so in the 1990s when the uh, when basically young young men and women felt that there was no cultural scene whatsoever in Medani uh in Al Jazeera state um th- and and they saw that the older generation was was not doing anything and was just kind of very much uh you know um submitted to the fact that the islamists are are here and they're here to stay and that we should just all be quiet and not do anything and they were very frustrated and they felt the need to to go ahead and work and do something and and just and and basically make the city more lively again you know and 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 make people know and sing and and write and and bring people together and hold cultural seminars and so on and they didn't really get the support needed you know 
and um, there were a lot of uh, problems that were caused by the by the older generation and the same happened to the younger generation that were kind of organizing and they were forming cultural clubs in after 2010 and this really made me feel that we also we also really have to dig deep and understand why this is happening and we also have to be very careful because because we because this intergenerational support is very much uh, important and this intergenerational problems are also uh, visible in the political sphere and in the civil society and in so many different uh, you know uh, circles basically and it was just very very hurtful the other thing is the the infiltration of the national security I mean, so many cultural groups and associations broke down and were ripped apart because of the infiltration by this national security. They would turn people against each other. They would basically support one group uh, and pit it against the other group. They would uh, pay people to, to stop working or to ruin a particular kind of association. They really did a lot. They did a lot of sabotage. And at the same time, they also supported, as in financially supported, uh, you know, certain groups and certain cultural, uh, you know, uh, activities, basically, because they wanted to use them to uh, silence people, but also they wanted to use them to kind of, um, you know, um, um, influence, you know, the mindset and the thinking of the people. And I saw this as very dangerous. And I saw that we really just we, we really just saw for a very long time, we thought about the impact of the national security on politics and how they treated the opposition. But we didn't really understand how much they were deeply embedded within the cultural movement and how and, and the amount of sabotage that they did and the amount of of just um, weakening of the movement that they tried doing. It was not always successful, but I think there was damage. And we do talk about a, a few examples of like, for example, a play that was supported by the national security. And, and, and it came out at a time when they really wanted to kind of uh, absorb this anger from the street. And they wanted people to feel that wow, you know, we do have some political freedoms. You know, we're letting this play that is kind of against the national authorities to to continue basically playing in the national theater. So so I think it really made us um, think differently and it really made us really ponder about so many different issues. Yeah, um, and I think I think what, what you said, Reem, and, and we had a lot of conversations about this also made us feel uh, very critical uh, towards institutions in general, um, not only because they can be and were infiltrated and so were neighborhoods and homes, but also because of the way that they sort of quell resistance or absorb it, as you said. Um, and that's not only uh, by you know, producing like state sponsored or propaganda pieces of art, but it's also by having this, you know, you know, concept of the um, nonprofit industrial complex, as they call it, where it's much easier and much better to have the government allow um, an institution to come and to be present and to help artists produce work um, in a controlled and, and accepted way and within like certain sorts of restrictions or parameters than to have uh, a young muralist like run to the main city or run to the fringe or run somewhere to participate in the revolution or to be on the streets or it's much easier to... Um, have a young activist be provided with certain tools and, and sent on specific missions and to have them organizing in the streets. And it's not to say that those two don't, can't work uh, 
And it's not to say that those two things can't work hand in hand. They often do, and there's often a lot of value in the support that that we kind of get that is that is institutionalized. But often there are agendas behind that, and it's important to be critical of that. And I think something that was shocking for me is that that idea of being critical is, especially of infrastructure, is very much present, actually rampant, I would say, outside of Khartoum or outside of Khartoum state, where people almost are on a level where they associate having access to artistic infrastructure with corruption, because the stories that they see behind, like, because the stories that they see around them are of peers and friends who got opportunities in Khartoum to produce very limited forms of art, sometimes propaganda, sometimes just watered down, diluted forms of their work, um, and just weren't able to create in the same way ever again. Um, And people who weren't okay with boxing themselves into those uh, very limited parameters were denied okay, you can't come on this stage. I mean, some artists told me stories of literally being invited to conferences and to art festivals. And then in the last minute, they'd be asked on stage, like, who are you affiliated with? Asked backstage. And if their answer wasn't good enough, okay, you can't perform, even though they were literally up next. So there are just like so many stories like that, where I almost, you know, had this assumption or this bias, which I think is is always good to admit, you know, in research that Khartoum was maybe the epicenter of art in Sudan or it was a place that maybe artists wanted to be or it made sense that artists might want to be there because that's where they can grow. Um, And then going and doing fieldwork outside of Khartoum and interviewing and speaking to artists, I would ask, you know, is that kind of what you want to go to Khartoum? And they'd be like, for what? So I can sell out or produce like fake art or um, just become someone entirely different. And on top of that, Khartoum is inspired by our cultures anyway, you know. Um, So there is so much real talent and intellectual work that has been done outside of the capital. And I think that was also one of the most shocking things um, to me of the sort of hostility towards the, the infrastructure that is there because they associated with the government and those opportunities with the government as well as um, uh, like a sort of disillusionment with the capital in general and their relationship with it, which we do, you know, get into in the book. I want to comment on one of the things you've said about kind of the relationship between people and institutions and one of the things that struck me, because I think for a long time, uh, as also part of this movement, I used to kind of get um, taken back by um, any relationship with like government institutions. So we, in a way, we, we just didn't feel that, I mean, for a long time, I would not feel represented by, you know, government-owned newspapers or, or even the different uh, artistic platforms that were there for us to use, but we just didn't feel any relationship with them. So we were kind of, so we, so, so many of us used to perform or work out of very limited, very limited uh, spaces and smaller spaces because we just didn't want to be part of this, um, of the government institutions, even though if you do think about it, they're there to serve us and they're there for us to use. And this was very, and this was very interesting because uh, in Al Jazeera, we um, one of the one of the groups that we spoke to, so they told us that um, they really believe that they had the right to use 
um, the there's this um, like a platform or it's called the the art palace, you know. So they felt that they have the right to use the art and cultural palace in 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 Wad Madani because it was created by the government for the artistic movement and they felt that they had to fight to keep using it because it was their right and it was a place that were there that was there to serve them so they would go and they would apply for a kind of a permit to to hold an event there and then they it would get accepted and then they would invite everyone and then when they go there in the evening to hold their event th- it was it would be locked So the security would lock it, you know, to ensure that they don't have access to it. So, but then every time they would kind of insist on doing the same thing because they wanted to. It was about making a point. They knew that they were not going to be able to access it, but they wanted to make a point that this is our right and we're going to keep fighting for it, even though we're not going to access it and we're going to end up having our, you know, seminar or our event in 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 a, in someone's house. But we have to just keep, you know, insisting to use it. And I really like this approach, and I feel that right now um, it is very important for us to change our relationship to to state to government institutions. So we should not see them as government institutions. They are state institutions. They were built by, by with our money, basically, and it is our right to keep fighting for them. You know, even if we're denied, we have to keep fighting and fighting until we we're able to access them because they're there for us, basically. So. It, it takes a lot to change this mentality because I think for a very long time, uh, we people just felt very much isolated from the state because of the governments that they just disagreed with. So it's not easy, but I think um, I think this approach uh, is, is is very much good. You wrote in another chapter, quote, the Islamists worked very hard to label artists and politicians or anyone who didn't appreciate their ideology as an outsider or as people who are uprooted from their society. This is why artists couldn't find allies for many years and fought an entire system by themselves. And it took years for them to build a constituency that would defend them and that began accepting them as part of Sudanese society, end quote. How do you think art and artists are perceived today in 2022 after 30 years of the systematic animosity between society and the arts and cultural sector instigated by its, the Islamist regime? I think this is a very interesting question. Um, we have to note that when the, when the Islamists came to power in 1989, they had a project. Uh, it's called the Civilizational Project. And I think for a long time, I only saw it as a social and political project. But now I also see it as also a cultural project. So it was a, a very comprehensive project. And um, in the words of its uh, of one of its, um, the you know, makers, basically, uh, Dr. Hassel Turabi, he said that it's a project to basically re-engineer the Sudanese public. So re-engineer is a strong word because basically they wanted people to be re-engineer to think the same so uh and and i think they they worked very hard and because because this project had a, a whole infrastructure basically okay to make sure that it goes through and it had a, a number of different arms and branches to ensure that uh, it really is that they do really work on re-engineering the, the sudanese public one of the things that we talked about in the book is the public order um, public order police or then the public order laws they're also called the morality laws so the public order is an entire regime it had courts it had a police force it had laws and in different states and it was also the public order laws were part of the criminal act And it also had um, a constituency that supported it, okay? And the morality laws, they basically, they do 
the, it's a very comprehensive set of laws, but the um, the gist is that they basically um, control people. The laws are there to control people. They control how you dress, what you say, and and how you act in public. And the the public order laws cr- criminalizes um, personal behavior of men and women, and it was heavily used against artists and uh, creative people because you were supposed to dress a certain way and you were supposed to to act a certain way or else you are not abiding by the public order. So you're not basically, then you're seen as an enemy, you're seen as someone uh, deserving of prosecution, deserving of being fined, of being imprisoned and so on. So, so yeah, so they work to re-engineer basically the Sudanese public into being kind of the same thing. And they were very brutal, especially in the beginning, because when they came to power, you know, they confiscated books, they shut down many uh, bookshops, they burned books. They It was very difficult to find any book that is not basically, that doesn't talk about, you know, religion or that doesn't talk about uh, the different uh, ideals of the, of the Islamists, basically. So they made sure that the market does not have any other books. Uh, they, of course, had, uh, for years, it was uh, impossible uh, to open the radio station and, and hear any song that is not um, a song that is related to jihad, for example. So love songs were banned. All the songs that 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 were that did not basically, um, uh, you know, that were not accepted by the Islamist regime were banned. Uh, so singers had to travel to to record uh, their music outside. Uh, writers could not really write because many of the magazines and newspapers were stopped. And it's so telling that when they came to power, they they of course uh, disbanded and banned political parties, but they also shut down the Sudanese Writers Union. So they knew that they had to fight culture and they knew that they had to fight culture, not because they necessarily had a cultural project. By the way, they did not have a cultural project. So they didn't really have their own, I would say, like artists and so on. Uh, But they were anti-art. And this is why I think they were against any other kind of art. And, and, And they made sure that they gave people a very hard time. And this is why for years you couldn't find books, you couldn't find, uh, you know, music tapes. Everything was banned, banned, banned. Um, so so after years, it was very difficult then for um, this. Was, they made it difficult for the society to accept artists, you know, because one of the reasons was people were scared. You know, I mean, you you could buy a book and it could get confiscated. They could raid your house basically because you have a certain musician or that because you hear, uh, you know, a particular musician. So people were scared of kind of of interacting with art, you know. Um, And at some point, and I remember one of the people we interviewed, he used to um, he used to be part of this cultural group and they used to hold um, and, and organize uh, theater plays uh, on campus and in different places. And he was telling us that they would start the play and then at some point they would get uh, the public order police would come and then they would all start running as in the actors, the actresses and even the public. OK, so why would you go to to watch a play if it could, you know, if then you could get arrested? So so I think a lot of it was fear. And a lot of it was because also there was a huge propaganda and a huge campaign against artists as communists, as as infidels, as people who hate religion, as people who do who do this and who do that. So I think also it was a way to change the the, the perception that they are all people who are against God, they're against the state, and they're bad people, and you should not be affiliated with them. You should not support them. And I think because this was really 
all the state instruments were in sync, it, it was very difficult to change this image. You know, artists had to really, they really struggled and they worked um, alone, basically. And they had to really rebuild themselves and rebuild this movement with sometimes with very, very little political, uh, sorry, public support. So it was a very difficult time. What about now? How do artists and and how do you think art and artists are perceived today? after all these years of, of building this animosity in a systematic way. What about today, 2022? I think it's very different today. I mean, I think, yes, uh, you still do have sentiments of, you know, of people who, who connect, you know, the art movement to, you know, the Communist Party, the leftist, you know. And of course, in Sudan, there's this mix between the left and the communist. You know, every, anyone who's seen as part of the greater left is, is seen as a communist. But, but at the same time, I think for today, people appreciate the role of art. I mean, right now, we're seeing, for example, more bookshops that are opening than bookshops that are closing, even though there's a huge, there, there are d- different problems related to inflation for example, and economic hardships. We're seeing more art centers, more galleries. We're seeing we're seeing real support to the movement and we're seeing different people also investing, you know, investing as in buying art, paying to 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 go to plays, uh, paying to 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 buy books basically from bookstores and supporting this movement. So I think it uh, I, so I think the movement and the hard work paid off, you know, and I think the revolution was kind of the icing on the cake, because even before that, um, we had uh, book fairs and we had cultural events that were largely that were that had huge constituencies and people were very loyal to them you know and i think people invested and they they then they went to events and they and they bought books and and, and tickets and everything because they wanted to support this movement because they knew that the movement is also about free thinking it's also about inspiring people to be what they want and it's also inspiring people to kind of think outside this very small box that the Islamists wanted to put us into. Um, so right now, I think the hard work has paid off and we're seeing a flourishing of this movement, even though there is, uh, we're going through economic hardships, even though we're going through a period where the civic space is shrinking, even though we are still living under a coup and so many things. Um, but I see what's happening right now is um, is just not sudden. It's a result of of decades of people working, of people getting arrested, of people fighting, of people really investing all their resources into something. You documented a lot of violence that took place in the 90s towards artists and the sector at large, whether it's their assets, performances, policies. So how does a long-standing status quo shaped by violence change in a country in a state of turbulence? I think first I want to talk about violence because... I think we have to break it down. There were so many different kinds of violence, okay? There was violence as in we had artists and writers and journalists who were imprisoned in ghost houses, which was like basically torture chambers in the 90s. Uh, And they were treated the same way the politicians were treated. Basically, they were kept there for months and years. Uh, And also we had uh, confiscation of uh, libraries. We had um, shutdown of bookshops. We had the shutdown of so many different magazines and so on. So there was a state-sponsored violence, and also we had um, we had also violence where it was more like economic, basically warfare, where people had like bookshop owners and so on. They would um, have all their books confiscated, and then they would have to buy them, basically. You know, so it was a kind of thing where they were forced out of the market. They were impoverished. 
many of them left, you know. And I remember in one of the interviews, we we were talking to this uh, artist and curator, and he was telling us that there was, um, um, in the 1990s, early 1990s, there was a, um, an exhibition in London, and they were dozens of Sudanese artists who were taking part of the exhibition. And at the time, I'm sure most of the Sudanese artists if, if if the same would would have happened in Sudan, of course it was difficult. But if if an exhibition was held in Sudan, uh, you wouldn't have found more than you know ten fifteen artists. So this is this is also very very uh, very hard because there is a huge brain drain that happened in the nineteen nineties, and the people that left, most of them didn't come back because for years they couldn't come back because they had to find a way to make a living and they had to find a way to rebuild their life there because they went there and they started from scratch. Uh, so this was definitely this economic war against artists and them not being able to find jobs and not being able to find institutions that would protect them forced many of them to leave. Uh, there's also this, um, this um, violence where basically um, that one of, one of the one of the examples that always comes to mind is how uh, in the 1990s um, uh, basically um, many of the sculpture sculptures uh, inside the faculty of art was actually um, destroyed you know by uh, students who or basically by fundamentalists actually who just didn't see uh, who saw it as anti-religion? Who saw it as uh, as something that shouldn't be there in the first place? Uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, going forward years, just I think about two years ago, there was this uh, statue of uh, of um, one of the martyrs, one of the young men that was killed in the revolution, and. Um, the people in the neighborhood didn't want this uh, statue, basically. So I feel that this kind of violence against art is still there in like small ways. And because for a very long time, you know, people were, you know, just this messaging and this propaganda of how art is against religion, how art is against your moral values, how art is against your social norms was kind of uh, was was on constant kind of replay, basically on like TV and radio and so on. So I think right now we're still kind of dealing with this repercussion of this uh, violence. So this was a really important body of work um, that is produced in such a turbulent and unpredictable time. So what is next for you both um, in your future? Well, I think, uh, you know, I'm always going to be present in sort of this uh, this area or corner of the cultural scene um, where I come from a very specific angle. You know, I'm, I'm very much into like convincing people of the value in theory and the value in knowledge and the value in reading. Sometimes when people are like, where should we go? What should we do? We know how to mobilize. What's next? I'm like, read this and then read that and then read the thing after it and read this theorist and that theorist. And we have so many um, amazing things that have been written, not just like within Sudan, because as we know, a lot of those books or, or thoughts or literature like are not shared or are not able to be shared. But uh, we have a lot of things, uh, African theorists, you know, Middle Eastern theorists, like writing and thought that needs to be shared. So I think for me, I'm like a massive and huge proponent of that. And I love working and creating some sort of like programming to encourage people to engage with that. Um, I'm also working on some cultural essays, uh, looking into... Um, 
yeah, the relationship between patriarchy and women in Sudan and um, some maybe Islamic concepts and how they are displayed uh, or how they are enacted uh, within culture in a very cultural way rather than in a in a religious way. Um, but yeah, and I, I've also uh, been doing some indigenous research within the context of development specifically. But ultimately, yeah, I'm the number one fan of any grassroots movement. And I really, really hope that this book is able to be some kind of foundation for people to either build upon or be inspired by, even if they hate it. That's also a form of a form of inspiration, you know. So if uh, if anyone thinks anything that we wrote is terrible, please write a book back. We'd love to see that. I think um, before I start talking about what's next for me, I want to say that I feel that in this very turbulent time, we want to see more platforms, more artistic platforms. I encourage people to 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 start more platforms, write, print, support, you know. We want the private sector to also step in and support. We need people to invest resources and also pay uh, pay for art, you know. If there is an exhibition and it's for and it's not free, and exhibition should not be for free. You pay, like pay for a ticket, you know, like support artists by paying for their work. Make sure that their work is paying well compensated so they can continue producing art. Uh, for me, I want to continue writing. I just feel that I um, I have a voice and I have this opportunity to use it. I want to continue writing. And I understand that um, this book is just kind of, Maybe it's just scratching the surface, you know, there's so much, we found so much information and so many stories and we couldn't include all of them also because, you know, it was uh, writing a book is an exhausting process and it's not an easy process. And you and also we were working and we were working on the book and working also to, you know, to pay the bills at the same time. So it was not always easy uh, to do that. But I feel that we started and we did something and we hope that others can continue to tell the story because the the story is not complete. You know, we just started. But um, there's a lot of things that need to be told, a lot of stories that need to be told. And we encourage people to continue writing and to continue engaging on this issue. We want our book to be a reference, you know, so if anyone wants to start writing about the art and the culture movement in Sudan, uh, to read it and get inspired and use the, so the the sources we used and use even some of the interviews to write their own thing. We want people to write and to and, and we are hoping that our book could kind of um, help them in, the, in their research. Um, so, yeah, like I said, this book is really uh, is not only is, is our work, but also we interviewed a lot of people and it is really we really depended on them because like i said it was very difficult to find uh, sources and it's very it was very difficult to find uh, you know uh, documents basically for us to use especially about that that time period and time frame so we really relied a lot on interviews and with uh, so many different people and we thanked them for their time and and without them this wouldn't have been uh, the book wouldn't have been here today um, and we also hope that we have that we will continue to have the energy, resources, and time to support them. Because, like Ruba said, so there were there are so many books out there that are there's that are best that are basically inside cupboards and they're not printed and they need care. And we need to support people to really, um, you know, put their basically products out there. 
Thank you so much. Um, I think the reason why we wanted to have this conversation, to have it on a Ugandan podcast, is because I think it's an important body of work. And I think that the, the region around us really needs to start knowing our stories from our voices. So big thank you to Prudence, um, a good friend and a fantastic storyteller who transgresses so many different thematic areas and brings it out so beautifully. And I want to thank both of you for this incredible seminal work. And I really hope that you can continue to write, continue to produce, continue to support this line of work, but also this sector at large. And I'm looking forward to hearing the feedback from readers, not just in Sudan, but in Uganda, in Kenya, in Egypt, in Lebanon, everywhere in the world, basically. And to see more people pick up from where you left off and run in different directions. Thank you so much for your time and so excited to have this book out now. Thank you.